The incredible performance of large language models on a number of different tasks has led to some important and interesting questions about what exactly is going on with them. We've seen assertions and debates around questions like whether large language models have theory of mind and whether they actually understand language. It's important to consider really carefully what these questions actually mean and whether they make sense in the first place. For instance, is theory of mind itself a valid construct, and do humans have whatever we call theory of mind? I think Cameron Jones and Sean Trott are doing some of the most thoughtful research on these questions. They bring a very strong background that blends cognitive science and linguistics to an empirical investigation of language model capabilities. We discussed some of their research investigating these questions and dug into both the empirical and theory-building standpoints of how they think about what they're doing. I hope you'll take as much away from this episode as I did, and that you'll learn from Cameron and Sean's perspectives on how to answer some of these difficult questions about language models and about humans. This is The Gradient Podcast, and I'm your host, Daniel Bashir. If you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to The Gradient in some way, I think you should go fix that. You can subscribe to the podcast on your usual podcast player to make sure you get episodes when I release them every week. And if you want to get the rest of what we put out on The Gradient, that means this podcast, our newsletter, and articles from our online magazine, then you can subscribe to us through Substack. And finally, if you like what we're doing, it would really mean a lot to all of us if you'd consider sharing this or whatever else you like on The Gradient. We're a pretty small team, this podcast is a one-man effort, and the entire Gradient publication is run by a very small group of dedicated volunteers. So whenever you do share our things around, when you leave comments for us, when you give us feedback, we all really, really appreciate it. But now, without further ado, Cameron Jones and Sean Trott. Cameron, Sean, you two have been doing a lot of really fascinating work. And I think that in some of your blog posts, Sean, this is the first time I've come across the phrase LLMology. And I'm pretty excited to get into a little bit about what this actually is, what it looks like, how we think about LLMs as an object of study. But in working towards how you two got interested in these topics, I'd love to hear from each of you how you got into AI generally in the first place. Maybe Cameron, you can start. Yeah, I, so I have a, first of all, thanks so much for having us on. It's just, uh, really exciting to be here. Um, yeah, I have a kind of uh, slightly weird background. I My undergraduate was actually in classics, um, like Latin and Greek. Um, so for a long time, I was interested in uh, meaning, uh, but in a more kind of humanities uh, sense. Um, and while I was there, I kind of got interested in uh, some of the kind of philosophy of language, particularly um, like Wittgenstein. Um, and uh, kind of thinking about uh, the actual processes that generate uh, meaning uh, for for humans. So that kind of brought me to do a master's in the evolution of language and cognition, um, kind of thinking about the cognitive processes that generate meaning. Um, and that was kind of the position I had when I started my PhD. Um, and I was really interested in embodied theories of language comprehension, <clears throat> kind of the extent to which our meaning is grounded in our embodied experiences of the world. Um, and in kind of running some studies to uh, test some of those theories, 
um, and partly through kind of working with Sean, um, got really interested in, in the idea of using uh, language models as a kind of uh, baseline to test embodied theories. Um, basically, you know, the idea that uh, if, if we are using these kind of embodied processes or we, or we need embodiment in order to understand language, then these disembodied language models shouldn't be able to um, respond in the same way that, that humans do. Um, and so that kind of uh, led me into focusing kind of more and more heavily on language models, especially as, as they kind of got a lot better over the course of my PhD. Uh, they became more interesting as, as an object of study in themselves. Yeah, um, I think we'll we'll get into a lot of different aspects of the intersection of these interests. I think especially in our final section, there's a lot of overlap with some papers that I've seen recently, especially I'm thinking right now of the vector grounding problem that Miller and Molo had of, I think more recently, Chalmers just published another paper on can language models think and kind of looking at this idea of, of a pure thinker and Avicenna's floating man argument and how that relates to embodiment. And then kind of a, another recent paper about Mandelkern and Lindzen looking at the question of can language models refer? And I'll be curious, in, in addition to kind of discussing some of the embodied theories and some of the stuff you've worked on, how you two think about some of the questions those papers tackle. But it sounds like there's a, a lot of really interesting intersections between your interest, Cameron, and then a, a lot of the questions that are being asked right now about we are seeing these models that seem like, at least on, on a vibes level, that they have these capabilities like referring to things. But again, we have to push back on what does that actually mean and do they meet the right preconditions we're looking at? Exactly. I'm, I'm really interested in kind of articulating those criteria uh, more closely in ways that we can kind of empirically test uh, for both humans and language models. I want to give Sean a chance to go as well. Uh, sure. Yeah. I feel like I also kind of had a roundabout path. I, my background is in cognitive science uh, at Berkeley, and there I focused on cognitive linguistics in particular. And a lot of the, the program there focuses on, on metaphor, the role of embodiment in language understanding. So I, I was really interested in that. And then I worked for two years at the International Computer Science Institute, working as a research institute, building these end-to-end -end systems to try to take language input and then control like a simulated robot. And the idea behind this approach was to take insights from what we thought we knew about human language understanding using in particular this uh, model called embodied construction grammar as a, as a framework for thinking about what meaning is, and then using that to basically drive the behaviors of a robot in the simulated environment. Um, and I, I was really interested in, in that work. And then as I was doing it, I kind of got more interested in returning to how it is that humans are actually processing language. And that took me to, to UCSD to do my PhD with, with Ben Bergen. And the first couple of years, I was more interested in pragmatics. So things like understanding indirect requests, like if I say it's cold in here as a request to turn on the heater. And I was interested in how it is that people understand those kinds of utterances. Uh, but it was always kind of with uh, machine understanding in the back of my mind, I guess. Like I, I always kind of thought about those questions in terms of like, what is it that humans are doing that um, computational systems are, are struggling with? And, or what is it that humans have that these computational systems don't have? Um, and then kind of as, as Cameron said, I think as language models started getting uh, better, I think particularly around 2017, 2018, um, I started getting interested in kind of merging the two strains of my research and then uh, particularly focusing on ambiguity, lexical ambiguity, but then kind of taking me more broadly beyond that into other aspects of 
what is it that LLMs can and can't do with respect to language or language understanding. Um, and then that kind of took us to where we are now, where a lot of our work focuses much more explicitly on what LLMs do as opposed to um, just using LLMs as models of humans. So. It seems like the questions that are being entertained about LLMs and their behavior are starting to get more and more refined. I remember a couple of years ago, you would hear comments like Jan LeCun saying that really LLMs couldn't tell you about what happens when you push a glass of water across the table or something like this, because they lack the embodiment, that sort of physical know-how that's important in understanding the physics of such a situation. And then similarly, I think the problem of explaining why a, a given image that contains something like irony, for example, was really funny, was considered to be a very, very hard problem. But now you can just feed a lot of memes to GPT-4 and it can do a pretty decent job at explaining to you why the thing is funny. And I'm, I'm curious too for you, Sean, in seeing a lot of that and then also given your earlier work on robotics and language, seeing maybe more recent work like SACAN and robotic affordances, combining that with language models, how have you sort of responded in thinking about maybe how the questions you were previously asking, have those changed significantly and, and how so? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think one way in which my thinking on the topic has started to shift over the last few years is coming into my PhD, I guess I was more firmly in the camp that uh, you need to have some kind of physical world experience to definitely understand uh, basically what we think of as understanding meaning of language. And I guess I just have entertained a lot more doubts about that as my uh, as time has gone on. And right now, I like, in fact, just yesterday, I participated in a debate uh, that uh, Cameron organized at UCSD on whether language models understand language. And um, I, I end up just kind of uh, not being sure uh, for exactly the reason you said, which is that um, in many cases, they behave uh, quite uh, convincingly as if they understand language. Um, and then I think the, the question of how this intersects with more embodied models, I think, Mostly, I just think it's really exciting. I think uh, it's really interesting to think of these different approaches of merging like a, a language model with, let's say, a system with the ability to act in the world or other kinds of multimodal inputs as different operationalizations, I guess, of, of different theories of how humans understand language, like what kinds of inputs and ways of integrating those inputs are actually necessary for language comprehension or for understanding. Um, and I think those are, now we have better ways to actually flesh those out. In the past, it was all always kind of verbal theories that um, people in psycholinguistics might articulate. And now maybe there's, we can start to think about these ways of as operationalizing those theories. Yeah. And I guess another kind of important draw here is, I think we'll get into this in some of your later papers, but when you're considering the question or the observation that these models behave really convincingly when we are assessing them for things like understanding, maybe they're not super convincing with things like theory of mind, but they perform decently, then you kind of have these two tracks that you articulate where on the one hand, there's this sort of duck test. If it looks like, if it quacks like a duck, then it's a duck. So maybe it really does understand. And then on the other hand, you have this sort of a priori rejection of, I know what it means to understand, and this thing clearly doesn't understand. So obviously there's a problem with the benchmark or something. And it's it's really interesting. I guess the latter seems a little bit more intellectually humble, or sorry, the former seems a little bit more intellectually humble is what I mean, the, the duck test version. And the latter, while it's a little bit more 
I know what's going on here, you can still kind of see how people work their ways there. And I guess I personally found it a little bit hard not to be at least a little bit sympathetic to the a priori rejection, even if I'm a little bit more on the side of the duck test as well. But I'm curious for maybe both of you how you've thought about that difference in terms of the, like, how do we articulate theories? How do we justify things? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the great thing, actually, that language models are doing for this debate is that we've been having a lot of these debates for a long time, you know, and uh, like Searle's Chinese room thought experiment kind of keeps coming up again and again. uh, And, you know, people have been debating about this for a long time, but it's kind of hard to develop intuitions about this Chinese room, which seems, you know, so absurd. Um, And sometimes it feels like we've kind of built a Chinese room um, in that the models are responding in, in exactly uh, the way that we would expect it, or, you know, in some cases, uh, in a very similar way to the, the way we'd expect a human who understands to respond. Um, but, you know, we, we kind of know the internal mechanism. Uh, well, we don't know that it, it is, is similar to the one that humans have. Um, and so I, I agree that I think there is, there's a temptation or there's, um, there's a lot to be said for both this kind of like duck test and uh, axiomatic projection positions. I think in the extreme case, you know, if we knew that the model had just been um, directly programmed to produce, you know, 10 or, or 20 responses, which are exactly the responses we need for our stimuli, you know, it would be passing a test, but we would be really reluctant to say that it understands. So I think there's certainly um, some sense in which we have to care about the mechanism that generates the responses. Um, but, you know, we, we know that LLMs aren't doing that. Um, and so I think essentially the, the, the existence of LLMs producing these, res- these kind of responses forces us to refine our criteria um, and to think kind of more deeply about actually what is it about uh, what humans are doing that makes us want to say that they do understand? Um, and how could we come up with testable hypotheses that allow us to kind of systematically separate uh, what humans and LLMs are doing? whether that's at a behavioral level or at a kind of internal level um, or even at a sort of architectural level, like thinking about the types of relationships that they have with the world. Yeah, the level of, of mechanism and internal representation seems to be really really important part of this conversation because, as you said, you can imagine maybe earlier chatbots or other programs that have these very pre-programmed responses or very simplistic rules for putting things together that maybe sound a little bit closer to the spirit of what the Chinese room argument might have been thinking about. And now when you look at LLMs, yes, I think there's this reductive sense where prior to instruction tuning, a lot of people will say, well, these are just next word predictors, and this is a very simple thing, but you really can't deny, again, that sort of behavior that occurs when you do this at a large enough scale. And I think now with research directions like mechanistic interpretability, people are starting to to open that black box a little bit to understand, are there other things that we can figure out about what's going on internally in these things? But there's this kind of two-way thing where I I think Subaru Kamabati kind of put this pretty well, where he described what's going on with LLMs right now as sort of this ersatz natural science, is I think the words he used for it, where we have these LLMs that are out there in the wild. It's a sort of organism almost that we don't fully understand. And so we have to, we have to poke at it with the stick and, and get it to do things and try to infer almost what's going on within it from that. 
Yeah, and I think, I, I mean, I think Tal Lundzen kind of made this point as well on, on your podcast uh, a few weeks ago that I think the human analogy is really helpful here because actually we, we have really poor like mechanistic interpretability understanding of humans. Um, and actually the, the way that we've developed these psychological constructs about humans is very similar. Like we've also been uh, dragging them into labs and poking them with sticks and kind of having hypotheses about, well, if they have this internal mechanism, they should respond in this way. Um, and so I, I do think that there's a legitimacy to doing the same kind of activity with LLMs um, and testing uh, kind of these theories about mechanism um, using these kind of behavioral tests. Yeah. So let's start getting into some more specific work. And maybe at the beginning, we can talk a little bit about language on its own as a bridge to some of the study of LLMs. So the first work I had in mind was something you worked on with Benjamin Bergen and Sean called Languages Are Efficient, But For Whom? And I think by the time this episode comes out, there will also have been another episode that focuses a bit more on language and efficiency with Ted Gibson, who also studies these questions about how languages get formed, how pressures of efficiency shape that. But this work is really interesting to me because you point out that what is efficient for speakers, maybe it's actually really efficient for me to repeat the same word over and over and over again. And for that word to mean a bunch of different things, because I don't have to do much work, is not as efficient for comprehenders. And so the for whom question becomes really important here. I'd love to hear a little bit about how how this question became interesting to you in the first place and how you started thinking about it initially. Yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, so this this question first started sort of appearing on my radar because I was really interested in ambiguity and a particular lexical ambiguity. So words that um, have the same sound but different meanings like riverbank or financial bank. And there's a paper from uh, 2012 uh, that makes a really interesting argument um, by uh, Pianta Dossi et al. 2012 that argues that the presence of ambiguity in languages actually reflects a kind of uh, efficient reuse of the same word form for multiple meanings. Um, and this this claim started even before that from, from Ziff, uh, who argued back in the 1940s that um, when you see uh, the same short, frequent word form being used for multiple things, that reflects this kind of optimal reuse pressure at work, where exactly as you said, uh, speakers have this kind of ideal language where they would just be able to say a single word a bunch of times for different meanings. And uh, as a kind of balance, maybe with the comprehender's desire to have different words for, for different meanings, um, you end up kind of loading a bunch of the more frequent meanings and uh, sort of uh, the, most, the meanings you most want to refer to frequently onto some of the shortest and easiest words to say. And I thought this is a really interesting and kind of cool counterintuitive argument about ambiguity, because I think ambiguity is usually kind of seen as a bug in the system. And I thought it was cool that uh, these authors are making the argument that it's more of a design feature, actually, of language. And at the same time, I was interested in the question of whether the balance of meanings across word forms was actually sort of optimally uh, balanced across speaker and comprehender desires, right? So the way that Ziff often framed this was that there's a, a compromise between a speaker's desire to merge a bunch of meanings for a single word form and comprehender's desire to have different uh, word forms for different meanings. And so exactly as you said earlier, if if speakers and comprehenders have different goals or different desires for how the, the lexicon should look, I was curious if there is uh, sort of an optimal compromise between those pressures and how the lexica actually looks or whether um, it ends up balancing more towards one of, one of them or the other, you know, so comprehenders or speakers. And so uh, the way we ended up trying to, to frame this was um, basically asking whether 
the distribution of meanings across word forms uh, reflected either comprehender-oriented or speaker-oriented pressure. So we used uh, what we call phonotactic baselines to simulate um, how you'd expect meanings to distribute across different word forms in the lexicon in the absence of any pressure either way, right? So what would a lexicon look like in a kind of neutral theory where there's no speaker-centric pressure and there's no comprehender-centric pressure? So phonotactics are basically the rules about which sounds occur in which order in the words of a language. Um, so in English, uh, you typically wouldn't start a word with uh, the sound B followed by the sound M, but in many languages, you can do that. Um, English also allows for consonant clusters uh, that languages like Japanese uh, don't have as frequently. And so you can use um, uh, either a simple n-gram model, which just models uh, the basically the probability of a particular sound occurring after another sound, um, or you can use a more sophisticated LSTM model, which uh, will enable you to capture slightly better long-term or long-distance dependencies uh, in the phonotactics of a word to, to build a generative model that allows you to ask uh, what would a lexicon look like if you were just building words in a lexicon based on how other words in that lexicon sound. Um, and then if you distribute meanings across those made-up words according to their phonotactic plausibility, so if that's the only pressure that determines how meanings are distributed, uh, what you end up with. Um, and what we found is that that baseline model, this kind of neutral model, ends up actually with even more meanings assigned to uh, sort of the most optimal word forms, um, the most phonotactically plausible ones. So we ended up with an almost kind of like absurd oversaturation of meaning. So the most homophonous word forms in these baselines would have 100 meanings, which uh, compared to the our models in the, the real lexica would be somewhere from 7 to 10 um, the maximum number of homophones per word form. So much, much more sort of higher upper bound. Um, and then also the more frequent words uh, in those baselines were even more ambiguous than they are in real lexica. So we interpreted this that at least under these assumptions, the real distribution of meanings in lexica is oriented towards making things easier for comprehenders um, relative to the neutral baseline. Um, and I think that's interesting because it's not necessarily true of other aspects of language. In fact, there's a lot of arguments that linguistic structure emerges uh, mostly from production constraints. Um, so this, uh, you know, again, under these particular assumptions of how the baseline was built, um, suggests that in the case of how meanings are distributed across uh, word forms, it seems to reflect a comprehender-centric pressure for efficiency. That's really interesting. And also that you note how this might be a little bit at tension with the idea that there are speaker-oriented pressures. So I'm curious in examining a result like this and thinking about its broader implications for how a language or the language you're studying develops, then how do you think about the extent to which you can expand this claim about comprehender-oriented pressure and maybe where that claim runs into certain limits, for example? And by expand, you mean uh, into other aspects of language structure or? Yes, just how broad a claim that can be made, I think, given the tensions that you noted. Yeah, I, I'm pretty reluctant to generalize the claim too much, I guess. Uh, maybe it's just because I'm an academic, but I, I like to have lots of caveats with my results. So, I, I mean, I think I'm confident making the claim, uh, the narrower claim that for the languages tested, it, it seems like there's a comprehender-centric pressure at play in the in the distribution of meanings across word forms. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty specific claim about ambiguity um, and how ambiguity get manifests in lexica. Um, the existence of ambiguity might still reflect some, the claim is not that there's no speaker-centric pressure at play. The claim is that the comprehender-centric one is stronger in this case. Um, 
and again, under these assumptions of how the baseline operates. When it comes to things like uh, what kinds of grammatical constructions exist in a language, um, uh, even just the the frequency of different words, whether short words are more frequent or not, I'm not I'm not sure I could really generalize the the claim to, to other aspects of linguistic structure. Um, and I think there is compelling evidence or arguments, at least, that those things do emerge from production constraints. Like um, a speaker is more likely to say the easy thing rather than a hard thing, and so just by virtue of this kind of um, uh, evolutionary model of which uh, constructions or words get passed down, it will be the easy words, not the hard words, or the easy constructions, not the hard constructions. So I, I think I think it's very much compatible with the speaker uh, speaker centric pressures showing up elsewhere. I see it more as trying to articulate um, exactly how those pressures manifest in different parts of language, where language is this kind of very big dynamic system, and there might be different pressures pushing different parts of it around in different ways. And so I, I see the, this aspect of the lexicon being shaped by a comprehender-centric pressure, but there could be other pressures shaping other aspects as well. Yeah, I can see how that would be consistent. Another really interesting aspect of this too concerns the question of ambiguity. One of the points you made in this paper was how the critical factor might not be for, for thinking about languages and, and ambiguity might not be thinking about meaning in isolation, but sort of this conditional entropy, if we're talking in, in the language of information theory over meanings given informative context. And I think that in other work, examining ambiguity in language, that's sort of one note about this, that it's okay to have ambiguous word forms, ambiguous things going on in language, because humans in our experience of the world, for example, or our knowledge of one another, we have enough context to then do that disambiguation. And so language alone doesn't need to do all of that extra work. And so I'm kind of curious how you think about that in intersection with, you know, comprehender-oriented pressure and, and some of these things. Yeah, no, I, exactly. I think um, there's an important distinction we made between what I think of as kind of the potential for ambiguity in, let's say, a word or a lexicon and the realized ambiguity, which is, you know, how often are comprehenders actually confused about which meaning I meant when I say bank? And that's hard to measure and actually quantify, but I think our intuition is that it is at least less than the potential ambiguity um, for exactly the reasons you mentioned, which is that uh, the surrounding words provide information about which meaning you intended, um, the sort of situational context, uh, the topic under discussion provides uh, context about which meaning was intended. It's possible that other kind of extra linguistic cues, maybe not so much for lexical ambiguity, but other aspects of ambiguity can be disambiguated using things like prosody or, or co-speech gesture. Um, there's a lot of other sources of information that we can integrate during language comprehension that um, means that the even if you kind of carve out a little bit of uh, language and say on its own, this seems completely ambiguous. When you consider it in the context in which it usually occurs, it's it's probably not as much of a problem because um, the assumption is that there's actually probably a, a fair bit of redundancy of where you can get information across the linguistic code, that it's not all like within a particular word. Yeah, this makes sense. I think this would be a good place to maybe bridge into our section on LLMology. And for a start here, as, as bridging, we've been talking a little bit about human language on its own. And now, again, we have these generative production machines that can output human seeming language, and we have all of these questions about them that we started looking at earlier. And this makes them interesting objects to study for two possibly similar yet also diverging reasons. A, as objects of study in relation to thinking about human language, what can they tell us about the way that humans produce language, think about language, insofar as you think 
that this behavior represents any similarity between internal mechanisms. And again, you might have different commitments about all this. And then on the other hand, insofar as maybe you believe that there is an important difference, they're very interesting objects to study on their own. And this kind of relates to the ersatz natural science articulation we talked about earlier. I guess I'd love to hear from either of you a little bit about how you think about what it what it looks like to study these objects and maybe where there are benefits to studying LLMs, where they fall short as, as a pretty broad question along these two lines, perhaps. Yeah, I think, so I really like this kind of... Um subdivision into studying LLMs as a sort of model of human cognition and then as interesting objects of study in themselves. And I think they do, those activities look quite different. Um, when we're trying to study uh, humans using language models, I think we need to care a lot about um, whether these models are kind of psychologically plausible in the sense of uh, have they been trained on a similar amount of data as humans? Um, are they kind of architecturally similar in the ways that we care about um, and also, you know, are they a good operationalization of this distributional hypothesis? Um, so in a lot of the work we do, we kind of avoid using these models that have been additionally fine-tuned using reinforcement learning from human feedback, uh, because that kind of quite fundamentally changes the, the kind of hypothesis uh, or that they're operationalizing, really. Um, and then this approach that we've kind of developed um, for answering those questions is really to uh, take human data um, of humans trying to respond to a particular kind of question um, and then see whether uh, language models can kind of explain away uh, the effect of a certain variable on humans. Um, and if uh, language models are able to kind of account for all of that variance, um, then it kind of suggests that the mechanism that they're using could actually be sufficient to explain um, the effect of that variable uh, as opposed to um, you know, needing some kind of additional resource outside of just language itself. Yeah, the idea of, of explaining away effects and the study of how a variable might affect humans and whether LMs can explain that is really interesting. Maybe just for a, a bit of a teaser, can you give an example of what that might look like in, in one, maybe a specific instance? Definitely. So um, I think the, the work that we uh, did on theory of mind uh, is a good example we were, where we were interested in both questions. Um, and so kind of trying to test this distributional hypothesis for humans um, is interesting because there there have been there has been a lot of theoretical debate about where our theory of mind ability comes from um, and some people argue that you know we, we kind of learn uh, we develop theory of mind um, across our lifespan based on uh, social interaction with people um, or even just from language itself you know language provides a lot of cues that could allow us um, to build scaffolding um, to think about other people's mental states, like mental state verbs and the fact that you can embed other people's thoughts um, in kind of uh, language. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of plausible theory here that humans could be using language alone in order to develop this kind of theory of mind capacity. Um, and other people argue that uh, you need other things that go beyond language. And so, for example, you might need some kind of uh, abate, innate, um, you know, theory of mind module. Um, that we wouldn't expect uh, you to be able to learn to do these things from, from language alone. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the work we did, we kind of took this classic um, false belief task um, where you kind of tell someone a story where um, a person in the story either is or isn't present um, for an object uh, being moved from one location to the other. 
Um, and then at the end, uh, we can kind of ask people whether they uh, think uh, that the person who was uh, absent for that object being moved, whether they know uh, that the new location of the object. Um, and so this has been used, uh, this task has been used for a long time to test for this ability of being able to kind of track other people's mental states um, in non-human animals and in children. Um, and so we, you know, we started by basically applying this test to large language models and asking this initial question, are large language models actually sensitive to this um, information about uh, the mental states of speakers and, and whether they're aware of information um, in, in the story about, about other people's mental states. Um, and from that kind of initial test, we did see this sensitivity um, for um, uh, GPT-3, text of NGO2. Um, so that suggests that there is enough information in the linguistic signal um, to allow for this kind of sensitivity to mental states. Um, then in, in this kind of second phase of the study, uh, we then gathered human data for the exact same stimuli um, as uh, the ones that we presented to the language models. Um, and in that case, you uh, still see an effect of uh, kind of condition, uh, like true belief versus false belief. So whether or not um, the character was present when the object was moved, um, even after you've accounted for uh, the ability of the language model to predict the human responses. So this, this kind of result implies that there's enough information to provide some kind of sensitivity to this mental state, which is already really interesting. Um, but maybe that at least the information that's gathered by uh, this particular GPT-3 model isn't sufficient to explain what humans are doing. Um, so it's kind of at least consistent with the idea that distributional information can get you some of the way there, um, but there's other kinds of information that we, we need as well. Yeah. In, in another one of the papers you collaborated on together, this one on do LLMs know what humans know, that I know is really focused on the false belief task. One of the really interesting things you point out and talk about is this internalist account of belief sensitivity, where you're thinking about the processes and mental representations I could use to solve this false belief task. And again, kind of thinking back to ways we might interpret results and behavior. One thing that Tallinn and also brought up was the more similar the observed behavior is that, at least to him, would license you to make perhaps more inferences about what sorts of representations might be used in the performance of a given task. So uh, if you ask, for example, uh, a model to do something like reverse a list was an example he had, then at some level, if it is capable of doing that, then Maybe, again, there's distributional information going on at one level of abstraction, but at least at some level of granularity, you can say that there is this more blunt representation that it is using in order for, to perform this task, because otherwise you might infer that it just wouldn't have the capability. And I'm curious how you two think about some of these questions of the internalist account and what we can infer about representations and what we're licensed to say. Yeah, I think the question about the internal representations versus the actual behavior we're observing is a really interesting distinction. I guess from my perspective, I think it's entirely possible for two systems to exhibit the same behavior and have different sort of solutions or mechanisms by which that behavior emerges. Um, I think the fact that sort of congruent or consistent behavior is, pro is produced across two systems uh, could be seen as 
you know, it's it's not evidence that they don't use the same representations, right? It's that that is one story that's that's consistent with that observation. But I think it is still nonetheless possible that different mechanisms produce that kinds of behavior. Um, I think that, uh, and I remember actually uh, this this conversation that you had with with Tolinson and about this. And I think that um, one thing he mentioned that I, I agree with is that in humans, we aren't really able to observe representations directly and we infer them from behavior. So to the extent that we infer them from behavior, then maybe we ought to infer those representations from analogous behavior and LMs. I think for there, it really matters whether the task you've designed is, is designed to assess representational structure in particular. So um, the theory of mind task that we use, the false belief task, I think there's a number of different kinds of representational states in like in theory, uh, you know, we haven't gone through and tried to catalog all the possible mechanisms by which these systems could solve the task. But I think there's a lot of different potential solutions that you could use your kind of representational states that could give rise to the behavior. Um, and so because the task wasn't designed to assess specifically the kinds of um, information that's getting encoded at different stages, it's a pretty blunt instrument, really. Um, I would be uncomfortable saying that that it's that it's positive evidence that the same representations are used. Um, I think it is positive evidence that the system sort of perform overall the same computations at the sort of computational level of analysis, but at the kind of algorithmic level and not, or implementational level of analysis, I'm not sure. Um, I know uh, Cameron has been doing some work uh, kind of following up on on the false belief task, trying to make like really specific parametric manipulations of um, if you can start adding uh, things like occlusion, um, transparency, you can start to get at uh, maybe a better picture, even without looking inside the model, um, what kinds of representations or information it's encoding. And I know Cameron wanted to talk more about that. But. Yeah, well, I mean, first, just more generally, I think that uh, internal representations can be really helpful with dealing with a specific kind of response to some of this work. Um, and I think there's just a long history of um, models appearing to show some really intelligent behavior. Um, and then after some kind of investigation, it turns out that they're using some Kind of shortcuts or superficial cues to produce um, behavior that's you know similar on the face of it to what humans are doing and i think the risk for that kind of shortcut learning is bigger um, when you are training models on like a huge uh, data set of training examples um, and it's kind of less of a risk for these large language models um, that are not being trained on the data set specifically um, but there definitely is still uh, a feel a, a sense in which if you're testing them on some really canonical um, type of test, so, so for the false belief task, for example, we generated new stimuli, um, but this is a really famous kind of um, question to ask, and no doubt a lot of similar kinds of questions appeared in the model's training data. Um, so there's a sense in which you can imagine it, it could have just learned this much cheaper trick of uh, completing a sentence that, that looks a lot like a false belief task with the correct answer. Um, and then the um, kind of getting back to we were talking about earlier, whether these tests can have the same validity for both humans and language models. Um, because humans haven't been exposed maybe to so many of those examples, uh, then the test doesn't really have the same validity for them, potentially, uh, because we know that they're responding to them in a really different way. Um, and so Tomer Ullman uh, kind of really drove this point home uh, by uh, presenting these what he called trivial alterations of the false belief task. Um, where you change something really uh, subtle, like, yeah, the, the container uh, being uh, transparent. Um, so 
if the container of the object is transparent, um, then the person should be able to see that it's moved, even if they were outside the room. Um, and he found that language models would fail on these kind of trivial alterations, um, which is a nice kind of behavioral way of showing uh, this mechanism, which we thought they were using. It seems like maybe they're not, uh, because if they were doing this in the same way as humans, they should be robust to these kind of alterations. Um, so in, in the work we're doing, we are kind of almost tried to like titrate uh, between this version of the example that the model does understand um, and then a version which seems to fail on consistently um, to try to understand actually like which specific parts of the sentence um, are causing it to succeed in some cases and fail in others. Um, and so this, this feels like a kind of um, more at what Sean would call like behavioral elemology, where we're trying to get at questions of um, like mechanism through these behavioral tests. Um, but I think that interpretability work could be really helpful here too. Um, and I think, uh, although as Sean says, a kind of lack of finding these consistent representations for something like mental states wouldn't necessarily be a conclusive evidence uh, that the models aren't representing things in the same way. But uh, if you did find uh, some kind of circuit or uh, set of states that was consistently uh, representing the mental states of people's in, people in the story, and that was kind of decodable, um, that would be much, much stronger evidence that the model is doing something similar to what, what we want to say it's doing or what humans are doing. Yeah, I guess we have to be really careful with how much we can say here, but it does seem like in certain instances we have seen things that appear to go on in LLMs that could mimic what we've seen in humans. So for instance, one of the really interesting papers that came out after Clip was released by OpenAI was this blog post on multimodal neurons and artificial networks where they found these concept neurons, right? Where one would respond to an image of Spider-Man or, or the word Spider-Man. And it seems like other studies in humans have found similar sorts of things going on in the brain, which is a really interesting overlap given that these things are, are pretty different systems. And you might think about how the task kind of inflects there. Maybe as, as a bit of a, a thought experiment, I'm, I'm curious. So, so let's say that we have, you know, a human, an LLM, and the LLM. We know that, again, it's maybe the style of LLM we see today, but it is more robust than what we have now. So if we assess it on theory of mind tasks, it appears to perform maybe as well as a human baseline. If we assess it on reasoning tasks, or if we assess it on some of the other tasks you looked at where you change things around a little bit, and it appears to be just as robust, what level of information would you need to have where you do feel comfortable saying that the representations being used inside this LLM are the same as what maybe a human is using? Yeah, I mean, for me, I think it's a great question, and it's a hard one to answer definitively, as you said. But um, I think one sort of prerequisite, let's say for for theory of mind, is that a, a model sort of exhibits human-like performance across a range of tasks designed to assess different components of theory of mind, which is kind of what we were trying to do um, in the more recent paper uh, uh, with Cameron and, and Ben on this epitome benchmark, where we used a range of different tasks rather than just the false belief tasks. Um, and my, my takeaway from those results is that um, the models we tested are doing um, pretty well on a number of tasks that require kind of sensitivity to false belief, but not necessarily integrating that with other things like uh, making pragmatic inferences about a speaker's intent. If it were the case that the model was performing very similarly to humans on those tasks, 
it would definitely push me more in the direction of, of thinking it, it has something closer to this construct like theory of mind. Um, in terms of the representations, I think we'd probably need more work exactly along the lines of what, what Cameron is uh, proposing or, or doing with these uh, kind of titrating the, the stimuli to figure out exactly what kinds of um, what kinds of manipulations of the input produce either sensitivity to or, or lack of sensitivity to this um, to belief states, for example, and whether um, those are the same ones that produce sensitivity in humans. It is presumably the case that there is some configuration of inputs of a way that a passage could be written, for example, that would make a human uh, reader more or less sensitive to a person's knowledge states. Some people just might fail to encode it in some ways that it might be written, and in other cases, they would um, it would be much more explicit. And if the ways in which it is explicit to humans are similar to the ways in which it is explicit to LLMs, um, that again would start to take me closer to thinking that they're doing something similar on that task, even in the absence maybe of this internalist approach. Um, and then I think finally this, uh, exactly as Cameron said, if you could identify like uh, circuits in the model that um, not only co-vary with um, the thing that you think uh, is being encoded, right? Like um, belief states, but that you can causally intervene on and systematically change the, the system's predictions. Um, like you can flip the, the activations in those neurons in that circuit and make the, the system predict an entirely different outcome. Um, I think then we would say that we do kind of understand a little bit better what the system is doing and that it, it is using something like a representation of a belief state to guide its behavior. Um, of course, the challenge with all that is we don't actually know what the circuit would be in, in humans, uh, which is kind of the the through line in all of this, which is that it's really hard to, to ground this in an understanding of what exactly humans are doing mechanistically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Cameron, do you have any more to add to that? Any different opinions here? No, I think Sean and I do quite closely agree in a lot of this. Um, I think one like thing I would bring up that I think is a useful way of, um, of framing this is just by analogy to the non-human animal literature, um, which I'm certainly not very familiar with. Um, but I think it was really helpful for us in uh, trying to think about how to interpret these um, LLM results, um, particularly because there has been a lot of discussion of uh, whether certain non-human animals, especially chimpanzees, um, have, you know, theory of mind or, or, you know, components of that umbrella ability. Um, and that's a debate that's been going on for decades um, with a lot of the same kind of problems that um, animals will display a certain behavior consistent with the idea that they're representing other mental states. And then someone else can come up with a kind of deflationary explanation um, for that behavior just based on kind of simpler heuristics. Um, and one of the kind of nice, um, I think, uh, outcomes of that is, is people have settled on this idea that you really want to be displaying the behavior in, in a really wide variety of circumstances. Um, and some of this, I think, relates to um, kind of Dennett's idea of the intentional stance um, that really, as if the organism is uh, displaying behaviors in a really wide range of environments that are consistent with the idea that it has some latent construct like uh, uh, the ability to represent other mental states, uh, then it just becomes useful uh, to use that term to describe its behavior. Um, and so I think that I, I probably am closest to having a kind of instrumentalist view with respect to language models as well, that if we reach a state where it just becomes really helpful language to use to be able to describe their behavior, um, then that, to some extent, that's that's kind of all we can do to uh, articulate the, what these uh, kind of latent constructs are. In some sense, that's that's all we can do with humans. 
Um, but I don't think that we're quite at that stage yet. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess in, in sort of an imagined world, the best theory you can hope for when you know there are some fundamental limits to the knowledge you can gather about something is, is the explanation I have, does it, does it explain all the observed phenomena? And then how long does it continue to be predictive about things, about behaviors I see in the future, which is really interesting. I want to bridge to our last section, which is admittedly full of a lot of buzzwords that people are attributing or, or arguing about with respect to LLMs. And maybe as, as a bridging point here, though, I want to use this really interesting paper that Cameron, you led about distributional semantics called distributional semantics still can't count for affordances. And there are a lot of really interesting points you make in this paper about how GPT-3 could potentially exploit deeper contextual cues beyond co-occurrence statistics, for example, that might have appeared in earlier models. And again, you're sort of concerned with this question of humans, humans, they are thinking about the meanings of words and interpreting things. And we know about the things we can do in the real world and take account for those affordances and constructing word meanings. There's a sort of example that, again, isn't exactly about word meaning per se, but that I always think about when it comes to a representation standpoint and how affordances count for language. A while ago, I, I had this example I brought up with one person about Dolly 2, for instance, was trained in this really interesting way where you might think that it's representations of images and of language because it was trained using this contrastive language image pre-training process. They kind of know something about one another, right? Because you're, you're embedding them in the same dimensional space and using that contrastive procedure it seems like your representations of captions, for example, even though captions are pretty blunt as opposed to individual words, those are kind of taking into account the image representation. But then Google came out with things like Imogen and performance-wise, they found that just throwing this giant T5 text encoder at the problem actually performed better when it came to the problem of generating realistic seeming images. And I found that really, really interesting because my intuition was if your if you're text encodings kind of know something about images, and maybe you might expect that to result in a generative system that produces more lifelike, more convincing images. And, and so I think just empirically, that's, that's an interesting finding that contradicted the intuitions I had at the time. But I'm curious how you, Cameron, maybe thought about that, how you square or, or make sense of an example like that. Yeah, so... Um... With the affordances work is is a good example of um, where we kind of intuitively you would think it's really unlikely that models could achieve anything like the granular understanding uh, or world model uh, that would be required in order to predict like novel affordances of objects just from text alone. Um, so just to kind of give a bit of background on the study, um, this was a, a study that was originally done. Um, by uh, Glenberg and Robertson in 2000. Um, and so they were kind of doing a similar thing to the sort of thing we do today, uh, but with really old distributional uh, technologies. They were using latent semantic analysis. Um, and they were kind of testing these embodied theories that, that humans needed uh, embodied information um, to in order to understand language um, by constructing these novel examples where someone would use an object uh, that would be really unlikely to appear in text um, to perform some task. Um, so for example, uh, one of the contrasts is, is like someone um, didn't have a pillow and they were out camping. And so they stuffed a sweater full of leaves in order to sleep on it, or they stuffed a sweater full of water. 
Um, and they showed that LSA was kind of uh, unable to distinguish between the likelihood of leaves and water in that case. Um, but humans obviously said that leaves made much more sense uh, as a, a, a thing to uh, substitute for a pillow. And so the idea here is that humans aren't can't be using kind of distributional cues because uh, there just isn't enough information in the linguistic signal um, to do these tasks. Um, so they must be using their kind of embodied experience of leaves. Um, so we kind of revisited that study, um, you know, 20 or so years later with modern language models. Um, and yeah, we had, we had, you know, some reasons to think that nothing really would have changed. Um, and there are lots of intuitive reasons why you'd think that it would be really hard to develop uh, this, this kind of uh, granularity of world model from text alone. Uh, one of them being just this kind of reporting bias uh, that people actually tend to not discuss really obvious perceptual features of objects um, precisely because they're they're obvious and there's no kind of communicative need. Um, but second of all, um, just because the stimuli were really well designed so that these were actually quite unusual situations um, and you wouldn't expect the exact sentence itself to appear in, in language. Um, but on the other hand, um, these modern language models, they're just exposed to so much text. Uh, and because they're so much bigger and because they can form contextualized representations of words, uh, so they can represent words differently in different contexts, um, it also kind of seemed plausible that they might be able to um, kind of indirectly infer um, these specific physical features of objects. Um, so they, they might not have seen leaves exactly in this context of being used in a pillow, but they might have seen, you know, someone jumping on a pile of leaves uh, and, you know, be able to, and I'm doing air quotes here, but like make inferences about the physical qualities of leaves from these, these other contexts. Um, and so we find a similar kind of result to the one that we find in the um, false belief study where you did see the sensitivity, particularly from GPT-3, but not from a bunch of other language models, including BERT, um, but they weren't able to explain the full kind of human effect. Um, and I guess to tie that back to your question, um, we, I kind of intuitively did think, uh, and especially then, that it was very unlikely to be able to produce this kind of sensitivity from language alone. Um, but it does seem like if you do throw enough uh, kind of text at the problem uh, and you throw enough computing power that you can infer a lot of these indirect relationships uh, and that text alone might be sufficient um, to, to really go much further than we, we ever would have believed in, in like 2017 or 18. Um, but at the same time, I think that uh, exploring this question of how much other modalities help is also really interesting. Um, and Sean's actually kind of uh, working on a follow-up to that um, affordances study um, specifically looking at uh, using, um, you know, images uh, as well as text uh, to see whether models, multimodal models are able to uh, identify the same kinds of relationships um, between these kind of novel affordances of objects. Um, and I guess also um, whether having that multimodal um, input actually helps uh, or whether they can identify that from text alone. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Sean. Sure. Yeah, it's kind of a a direct uh, replication extension of of the work that that Cameron just described, where um, we would we're using the same set of scenarios that have these novel uses of an object, like using um, a shirt to dry yourself after you get out of a lake, versus using glasses, where one of them is afforded but maybe not the most natural or canonical use of the object, and the other one is just not afforded. If you understand what glasses are, you wouldn't try yourself with them. Um, and as Cameron just described, we see uh, sensitivity in sort of text-only language models to these kinds of novel affordances. 
Um, and what we're interested in now is uh, does a multimodal model, right, one that has both text and vision, for example, are its representations of visual images uh, sensitive also to the affordances of the object that that image represents? So to take the same example of um, someone getting out of a lake and needing to dry themselves, um, if you imagine selecting not the most probable word that would be likely to dry themselves with, right, like towel, um, shirt versus glasses, which is the original way that this experiment was designed, instead selecting among possible images representing the thing that they might use to dry themselves. Um, the question is whether uh, a multimodal model selecting among those images has learned the kind of information from its training set that this image of a shirt is something that you could use to dry yourself. Um, and I think there's actually pretty interesting reasons to think it could go either way, right? So as Cameron said, um, we might think that a multimodal model will be more sensitive to affordances because uh, one of the ways that presumably affordances and understanding affordances emerges in in humans is multimodal experience with objects. Uh, a unimodal experience of only like a text label for an object seems much more uh, sparse or impoverished than um, also having this other kind of visual representation, this visual channel of information. But on the other hand, um, when you think about the fact that these are basically trained to produce uh, captions for a bunch of images, or they're basically trained to associate a bunch of images with their captions, um, it also seems entirely plausible to me that um, information about uh, sort of novel affordances about an object may just not be inferable from its visual properties, right? So um, one question is uh, whether the kinds of visual representations a model has of a picture of a shirt are similar in some sense to the visual representations it has of a towel and, and thus what, whether it would infer the same affordances from those things um, or whether those visual representations are just too uh, uh, dissimilar, I guess. Um, because it feels to me like, at least intuitively, like the, the, the reason I know that you can use a shirt to dry yourself is that I have like haptic experience with shirts uh, beyond just sort of knowing what shirts look like. Um, and so it's very possible that just this kind of static visual representations of these things will not be sufficient. Um, so we're, um, along with some uh, other research uh, researchers on the project, putting together some uh, visual, uh, both synthetic and natural images to kind of substitute for what was originally the, the text um, objects. And so we'll hopefully report back in a couple months on the results of that. But Yeah, your, your intuitions about what would happen there seem right to me. I guess it's hard to say until we actually have some results there. Another another kind of take on this, and I think direction, was there was an interesting recent paper, I think out of mostly the Allen Institute about the generative AI paradox. And again, this isn't in clip-like systems necessarily, but the point they made about systems that can generate text, that can generate images, it seems like the task that you train a model for is really important in the sorts of inferences you can make about what's going on in that model. And maybe this is a good bridge to some of our questions about do LLMs understand? Do they know things? How do we know if they know things? The generative AI paradox was a really interesting paper, I think, because they showed that you have these systems that are capable of generating images given text, and the images seem plausible to us, but then when you query these systems about what's actually going on in the image, they don't seem to understand the images they just produced, which is very different from us humans, because in order to produce something like an image, to paint something, it's a little bit more, in most cases, bottom-up, where I, I seem to have an understanding of the small details, the mechanisms, 
what a house actually is in order to make a painting of a house or something like this. I think kind of starting to bridge that towards questions about people have, have used all these buzz, buzzwords to describe things that LLMs might do. People say that they might be capable of reasoning. They might be capable of theory of mind or earlier example. They might be capable of reference. We've, we've kind of talked a little bit about how we can sort of justify claims like these. But again, when we're thinking about a word like understanding, perhaps, that is even more abstract here, how would we know something like the claim LLMs understand language? What, what would be the evidence there? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question uh, and uh, obviously a tough one to answer. Um, and I think, you know, although we've talked about this a bit already, I mean, I would start from thinking about how we know the answer to this question with humans um, and, you know, start by thinking about, you know, what are the kind of behavioral criteria that we would want um, to have in order to establish that someone understands something. And I think acknowledge that in many cases, um, we don't really understand what humans are doing when they uh, respond to language. That there's there's a lot of kind of mystery in that system as well. Um, but beyond that, I think there are a bunch of um, things. You know, if you imagine that a system is producing kind of perfect um, behavioral responses, um, there's a bunch of other kinds of things that we might want to care about in order to say uh, that a system understands. Um, and I think you know, grounding is uh, a really important one. Um, and I think something that affects our intuitions about understanding a lot that uh, you could have a model that's producing all the right kind of language, but uh, it doesn't, it's, it's productions aren't, don't have the right kind of relationship with the world. Um, and I think this Molo Millier paper that you mentioned earlier um, does a nice job of articulating actually those different types of grounding and um, which we might care about um, that could be really important for understanding. Um, and I think in particular, you know, before I'd read that, I was very used to thinking about what they call sensory motor grounding as being uh, one of the most important things. Um, and so really that's just connecting text input to uh, other kind of modalities like like vision. Um, and it, it feels as though we're getting getting there quite quickly. Um, you know, things are moving along quite quickly. And so, you know, some of the research we're doing implies that um, these image and text representations uh, are integrated in a way that's, you know, maybe not too dissimilar from uh, the way that they are for humans. Um, but, you know, beyond that, yeah, you might want to care about something like referential grounding. Um, and I think that's much harder to basically evaluate empirically. Um, so referential grounding might be something more along the lines of when I utter a particular sentence like, you know, the cop on my table or uh, Neil Armstrong, that there is some kind of entity in the world that I am referring to. Um, and I think that's hard, harder to test empirically because... Um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to cash that out in, in sort of causal mechanistic terms, like what it means to refer in that sense. Um, but I think there's a, really, there's a really good debate to be had here if we can get better at articulating what that means um, in terms of kind of referring involving this causal chain uh, of events from some external entity uh, into my kind of internal representation, uh, into my like utterance, uh, that, that the fact that I'm referring to that entity really in some sense, means that that entity has caused me to produce this particular utterance. Uh, and in the case of the cup on my desk, it's really easy to see how that's a, a tight uh, causal loop uh, where, you know, uh, photons emitted by the cup, you know, uh, are, are coming into my eye and, and that's kind of causing me to be able to produce this utterance. In the case of language models, it seems like they're lacking that um, causal reference, you know, even if they... Um, 
even if they have sort of visual input and they're able to refer to cups in general, um, it's harder to argue that they're referring to a specific cup. Like we don't have those same intuitions about uh, the this kind of tight causal loop uh, in their case because their training data is all kind of aggregated across, you know, uh, wide expanses of time and space. Um, but at the same time, you know, uh, when a language model does produce a sentence like, uh, you know, Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, there is a causal chain from that initial event to the language model. Uh, it's just much more indirect. You know, it's it's come through, um, you know, people who've seen that event and they've then written this language and this language has ended up on the internet. It's ended up updating model weights. Um, and I think I don't, I don't have a strong feeling about, or rather I haven't managed to identify uh, really closely like a, a particular criterion uh, that's that's very different about those causal chains that makes us want to say that uh, humans are referring that but language models aren't but it feels like a promising direction for me to push in um, towards addressing this this question of uh, whether language models fail to understand in a way that, that humans do yeah there's an important distinction here in thinking about this question of reference that i feel cameron you also might have some interesting ideas about which is I've noticed a few papers recently making claims about LLMs referring. And sometimes I noticed a slippage between the claim that the words uttered by LLMs refer to things in the world, just the same as the words I utter refer to things in the real world. Or if I if I had, you know, a print statement in Python that just prints out a sentence, technically the words produced on the other word on the other end of that do refer to things in the world when I interpret and understand them. But I've noticed a slippage from the claim that the words LLMs use refer to things in the world, and that gets used to justify the claim the LLMs themselves are referring to things in the world. And importantly, these are connected, but they're, they're two different things. And I feel like when you kind of loosen that up and justify the LLMs are referring claim from the words refer to things claim, then you might end up in some weird situations like the idea of asking questions like, can a photocopy or refer? Which sounds really, really weird. And like, maybe you are allowing the slippage because you actually believe that photocopiers can refer. But I feel like most people would not be interested in that question and would just find it kind of weird. And so I'm curious how you think about taking that care and, and the relationship of these questions about words referring to things and then looking at, maybe this is even an ontological question. You know, Is this the right type of entity in the world that can actually refer to things? If you have sort of intuitions about all of that. Yeah, I mean, I, this is, again, just a fascinating question. Um, and I think that, you know, with the with reference, it feels like there's a couple of different pieces. Um, and one of them kind of more along the lines of what I was talking about before with having the right kind of like causal uh, chains um, that, you know, I, I think that there's an argument that you could make that the causal chain between humans and LLMs isn't isn't that different or isn't isn't different in kind. Um, and that you know they, they could you could get away with saying that their language uh, does refer to external entities because those external entities have kind of caused this chain of events that's led to the language model producing this particular statement. Um, and I think I, I, you you could also tr kind of make a similar uh, argument for the photocopier. I suppose uh, you know when you think about um, representations as being these kind of um, signs that are are causal relationships where. Um, you know, a photograph of an apple in some sense represents that apple because there's this consistent causal relationship between, um, you know, 
certain aspects of the apple, certain as aspects of this representational medium, um, and to a particular observer, um, like a human who's looking at the photograph, they can uh, recognize this correspondence and use the photograph of the apple to represent the apple. Um, and so I think from, from those perspectives, we could think of the language that LLMs produce as um, kind of representing uh, those, those real objects in the world. Um, I think the other part of this uh, is communicative intent. And I think this is also a really important concept, but something that's really hard to, I mean, I think just think about uh, very rigorously, um, but particularly to test empirically. You know, if you want to have empirical tests of whether uh, something has communicative intent, um, I, I think it's, it's very hard to think about how you'd kind of set that kind of thing up. Um, I mean, I think strong intuitions that humans have uh, communicative intents because we have this internal introspective experience of having desires and there being reasons for our behavior um, and we are keen to deny those things for language models I think because we have no kind of a priori reason to believe that they they want things you know they're just uh, producing uh, the most likely next token in, in the uh, sentence uh, but I think there's a potentially interesting avenue here to start thinking more seriously about um, language models as having or thinking about goals in the sense of um, the the kind of history of the system uh, and the certain kind of if you like training objectives um, are the things which give a system its goals that um, uh, and this kind of relates to some of this like more like teleosemantics work uh, where you know, we have been kind of driven by this like evolutionary process um, to you know, maximize the fitness of our genes. Um, and in some sense, if we want to try and think about the function of a particular action, um, one way in which we can uh, justify a particular action uh, having a function is to think about the fact that uh, the fact that our ancestors uh, did this action uh, led to this particular outcome, uh, which is why that, uh, that particular action continues to exist in the world. Um, and, you know, I, I think there's potentially some uh, a, 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 an argument that might hold water um, thinking about uh, AI in the same way that um, the fact that AI does things in a particular way is because um, it had some training function uh, that uh, either modified its behavior in a certain way or, or allowed it to uh, continue to the next step of some um, training process. Um, and so you could, you could kind of make a... Um, teleological argument uh, that models behavior uh, is uh, has the function of you know achieving some goal that was rewarded during training um, so this is this is all pretty starting to get a bit tenuous but um, I think that's a kind of route you could take if you wanted to um, argue that models could have something like communicative intent and again at the moment I don't think that um, we are there because I don't think that um, the way that models are trained at the moment is rewarding this kind of a good communicative intent. And I think that that leads to some of these results, um, like the generative AI paradox work, uh, where you see models that they are trained to produce really plausible kind of first pass responses to things. Um, but they're not so much trained on this, like in context learning to interrogate um, things that have been said in the conversation so far. And so you get this mismatch between their apparent understanding of a situation, their ability to produce really good um, answers to general questions, um, but their their kind of relatively poor ability to interrogate discourse context um, and make connections and 
um, you know, critique their own thinking and things like that. Yeah, this makes a lot of sense to me. I'd maybe like to talk a little bit more about, again, some of these ideas of, for example, understanding language, but from the other perspective of the person who's consuming and understanding. And then maybe we can talk a little bit more in depth about the studies you two did on, on theory of mind. And this one that I had in mind was, again, for Cameron, I guess, a paper that you worked on with Benjamin Bergen. The, the main question that you proposed in this paper was, are pronoun resolution decisions influenced by knowledge about physical plausibility? Again, does physical inference matter in pronoun resolution? How do you think about the methodology for establishing an answer to that question, like the one you proposed? Yeah, thanks very much. Um, so in that paper, we're kind of trying to do a, a somewhat similar thing to what we were doing in the affordances paper. Um, and then we're trying to think about whether uh, our kind of embodied knowledge of the world has an impact on uh, our understanding of language. Um, and again, here, um, we're interested in, you know, using ambiguity in language to explore this. Um, so there's lots of ways in which we might imagine that we have to connect um, our kind of interpretation of language um, to our understanding of the physical world. Um, but we're interested specifically in whether that kind of background knowledge, uh, that kind of non-linguistic knowledge of the physical world actually ends up influencing our interpretation of language. Um, and so we address that question uh, in humans by designing these, um, these uh, examples of ambiguous pronouns um, where, so for example, one of them uh, would be when the rock fell on the vase, it broke. Um, and so in this case, the pronoun it is ambiguous in that it could refer to either the rock or the vase. Um, and people tend to resolve that pronoun it to the vase. Um, you can also uh, reverse the order of, of the two noun phrases and you can say when the vase fell on the rock, it broke. Uh, and people kind of consistently uh, resolve the pronoun to the, the vase, um, uh, which kind of implies that this isn't some uh, syntactic uh, feature of language. Um, and we know that these, these kind of syntactic features have an influence on pronoun resolution. Um, and so the, uh, the theory we're investigating there is that people are actually using their physical world knowledge to resolve that ambiguity. Um, that they're doing something like, uh, either like running some sort of physical simulation of the event uh, to think of what would be more likely, um, or maybe using some uh, more heuristic uh, you know, representation of which of those things is more uh, fragile. And so this was another case where we're kind of um, uh, making this claim that humans are using this non-linguistic resource in order to uh, perform this language comprehension function. Um, and so at the time, we were starting to use these language models to test these other kind of theories. And so it seemed important to also um, test whether distributional information could account for this phenomenon. Um, and in principle, it seems like uh, language models could uh, do this, you know, that you might see lots of examples of um, pronouns being resolved, and you might might see the expression, you know, the vase broke much more frequently than you would see uh, the rock broke. Um, and so we uh, performed this kind of distributional baseline analysis, where we presented a lot of these uh, sentences to the uh, the same sentences to the language models and basically trying to use their um, predictions in order to predict uh, the human responses. Um, and in this case, especially in the second experiment where we used um, uh, self-paced reading 
paradigm um, to basically look at whether people were slower to read uh, later sentences that would contradict the more physically plausible interpretation of the pronoun. We actually didn't see any effect of um, language model predictions at all, um, which suggests that, um, you know, that, and that was, again, GPT-3, uh, text of NGO2, um, but that, that language model at least um, isn't, isn't picking up on enough um, information about these uh, physical relationships in order to um, either to correct, well, I, I think it was, you know, it's capable of correctly predicting the pronoun resolution response to the outcome. Uh, given the sentence, but as soon as you expand that in, out into a whole paragraph um, and you have uh, this kind of later sentence contradicting the interpretation, um, it's it's too diffuse of a signal um, for it to be able to pick up on the fact that humans will slow down when they read this later sentence that implies that the virus is still intact um, and language models aren't as sensitive to these kind of um, yeah, very, very diffuse uh, consequences of, of physical reasoning in, in language comprehension. Yeah, one, one kind of connection I was curious about here, and this is maybe not a super well-formed thought, but on the one hand, we, we have things like physical inference, and when humans are, are reading language, our ability to go about and do things in the world influences things like what you said about I drop a vase, a vase and it's still it hasn't broken apart or something like this, because that's surprising to me. And I guess when you start taking this in, in other directions and other facts about the world that might influence the ways in which we process language, not necessarily physical, you have, on the other hand, for example, if I'm reading something about a game of chess, my knowledge about how chess works, about a chess board, is going to influence my process, my processing of language in that instance. And there's been some some work recently that's kind of looked at the idea of, of world models and language models. So I think a fellow GPT was this really interesting one where you can kind of read off behavioral evidence and, and some things about interpreting what's going on in the model to say that this thing has what we might call a world model, a model of what's going on in an Italo game. And it is using that information to process language, to say things about what's going on on an Italo board. And maybe, for example, actually like give me valid moves in the game of Atella. I'm curious how you think about maybe the intersection of these things where we're thinking about human world knowledge, how that influences things like pronoun resolution or consumption of language. And then on the other hand, when I'm thinking about models and their ways of processing language, what it means to have a world model and how those two things intersect. Yeah, I think this is another case where it's really interesting to think of um, the existing human work uh, and you know there's been a lot of work kind of trying to argue that people have what we call situation models um, that as you're processing language you're building this kind of internal representation of what that situation looks like um, and there's actually a heated debate uh, in the human literature about what is uh, what constitutes those models you know are they are they more like uh, 3d you know physics engine renders of the situation or are they more like lists of propositions uh, about, you know, John is in the kitchen, uh, Harry is carrying the milk. Uh, and th those things have uh, really different implications for kind of our mechanistic understanding of cognition. Uh, but it's actually really difficult to tease them apart. Um, and I think that uh, a lot of the work um, looking at language models is, is kind of doing a similar thing where you're actually trying to see if they were developing a world model to this uh, granularity, we predict that they would be keeping track of this thing uh, and they would 
notice if, if we change this or they'd be able to answer this question later on. Um, and so I think that we're probably going to end up in a similar situation to the one run with humans where uh, there's a lot of different types of theories of world models that could be consistent with the same behavioral data. Yeah, this makes sense. Let's maybe talk a little bit more in depth about something we've teased earlier, which is the studies you two have done together on theory of mind. And maybe I'll give Sean kind of a chance to introduce this one. So you talked about Epitome, this experimental protocol inventory for theory of mind evaluation, and the sort of six experiments to measure distinct aspects of this. And I think we've talked quite a bit about the false belief task, for instance. Could you talk a little bit more about the other different experiments you ran and those tasks, how they measure different abilities and language models for, for mentalizing? Sure, yeah. So just to give a little bit of uh, background again, theory of mind is this kind of very broad construct uh, that's discussed predominantly in the human psychology literature, this idea that you can reason about, make inferences about the mental states or emotional states of other other entities, basically, or attribute mental states to other entities. Um, and kind of as Cameron mentioned earlier, there's a lot of debate about which other kinds of organisms have theory of mind when theory of mind comes online in developing children. Um, and so we looked to the literature on how theory of mind is typically assessed in humans and tried to identify tasks that could um, be readily adapted basically to assess a language model. So one of those was the false belief task, which we've already talked a lot about. Um, another one is this task called the short story task, which had been developed, um, I wanna say six or seven years ago. And I actually used this task first for a different experiment earlier on in my PhD to assess mentalizing in humans. Um, and in this task, you read a short story by Ernest Hemingway, um, and then you answer a bunch of questions basically about that story designed to assess your reading comprehension sort of overall of the story, like um, independent of mental states uh, in the story. Like, do you know what happened in the story? Like the, the, the bare facts of what happened. And then there's also a set of questions that are designed to assess your explicit mental state reasoning. Um, one of the things that we liked about this task as well as some of the other ones that we assessed or, or adapted was unlike the false belief task, which measures a very specific thing, which is uh, basically someone's um, or a system sensitivity to beliefs about the world. Um, the short story task was intended and designed to measure also things like uh, inferences about emotional states, uh, sort of pragmatic reasoning to some extent. So why did someone say something? So for example, one uh, incident in the story, it's about this couple on rowing a boat on a lake and one of them says to the other ones, um, uh, you know, this isn't fun anymore. And uh, the a human and also GPT-3 in this uh, case would be asked, like, why did Nick say to Marjorie, this isn't fun anymore? And there's several different examples of, of uh, responses that you could give. And a relatively low mental state reasoning response would be that Nick is referring to, you know, having fun fishing, uh, whereas uh, one that might take into account more details about the situation, his mental state is that he's unhappy in his relationship with, with Marjorie. Um, and if you've been reading the story and kind of like building a model of the different characters, that would be a little clearer. Um, and so there's a bunch of questions that are designed to assess mental state reasoning and then others that are designed to assess reading comprehension. Um, so that's the, the short story task. Uh, there's a, a few other tasks, including the strange stories task, which is kind of a similar idea in that you read a very short story and then answer questions about why someone in the story said something that might be kind of sarcastic or ironic. Um, there's also a task that we adapt, adapted called the recursive uh, mind reading task, which again comes from a, a human result, a relatively surprising human result, I would say, that um, that showed 
that uh, humans are actually sensitive to sort of six or seven levels of embedding about mental states. So um, one way to think about this is if you're thinking about like a gossip chain, like, um, you know, does John know that Sheila thinks that Mary knows that John likes her or something, you know, a very kind of like complex chain of, of relationships of embedded mental states. Um, the intuition I think I would have is that people kind of, uh, plateau after about like two or three levels of embedding. Certainly when I'm thinking about a sentence like that, it's hard for me to track what's going on after up to a certain point. But the interesting finding in humans was that they're actually pretty good up to about six or seven levels, um, particularly when these are presented in a kind of like dialogue format. Um, and it's an, I, if you're interested, uh, we can also share like the, the materials too, because I found that when I read through the materials myself, I, I suddenly got why I was able to, to do it. Like there's something about seeing it embedded in this more naturalistic context where it felt like you are able to actually tend to those different levels of embedding more, more fluidly and just more naturally. And maybe, maybe it tells us something about kind of the, the degree to which humans are socially attuned and kind of naturally good at representing nested belief states about other people and their beliefs. Um, so that was another one. Um, and then we also adapted uh, two uh, pragmatic reasoning tasks. So these are tasks that assess uh, your ability to understand why a speaker said something. Um, one of these involves scalar implicature. Scalar implicature is when you infer that um, a word like some is used to mean some but not all, but uh, as opposed to all. Right? So if I say some students pass the test, um, it is literally possible that I mean, actually all of them passed the test. Like I could say some of them passed the test. In fact, all of them did, but it's very unlikely that I meant that. And um, in the human literature, the assumption is that we're usually kind of applying some recursive uh, mental state reasoning about why the speaker said what they did. And if they had instead meant all, they would have said all. So therefore they probably meant some, but not all by saying some. Um, so there's a task like that. And then there's another task looking at whether people use uh, mental state information about a speaker, what a speaker knows about the world to infer whether they're making a request. So if you tell me uh, it's really cold in here um, and the heater's broken, uh, I might assume, uh, right, for egocentrically that you're not asking me to turn on the heater because um, I know the heater's broken. So if I were to say that, I would not be asking you to turn on the heater. But um, if I know that you don't know that the heater's broken, then maybe it's more likely that I will interpret that you're making a request. Obviously, I can't fulfill that request, but um, I might still interpret that as your intent. Um, and so both of these tasks were designed to basically ask, how do people use or integrate mental state information with um, making inferences about what they mean? Um, and I think there's an interesting difference between those two tasks, uh, kind of theoretically from the rest of the task we used in that they're a little more complex uh, conceptually or, or cognitively and that they um, seem to require multiple cognitive operations, I guess. Like you have to both track and maintain information about a character's mental states in a story and then also use that information to explain why they said something. Um, so you have to both like sample this information and then at a later stage also deploy that information. Yeah, the last two tasks are especially interesting. And I think when we're thinking about the question of language models answering, say, broadly, like reading comprehension examples or, or questions about these. I'm curious how you think about, or if you think at all about potential confounders and what's going on with the language model. So for instance, there's been some earlier work that has studied what are language models actually attending to when they respond to reading comprehension questions about a passage. And I think some work from maybe Lipton found that these models weren't actually looking at the full passages when they answered reading comprehension questions, but were actually just looking at something like the last sentence. And in their cases, 
I think the models were actually doing quite well. And in your case, of course, you noted that it might be premature to attribute theory of mind to these models. But I'm wondering if that sort of observation about are these things actually looking at the full stories, if that's something you you think about kind of taking into account and how that might influence some of the results you get. Yeah, no, that's an interesting observation or question. I think it kind of also leads back to this question earlier about uh, mechanistic uh, interpretability, or I guess uh, thinking about mechanistic, the different mechanisms by which a particular behavior might emerge. Um, we haven't necessarily taken that into account in the analysis of the results, but uh, one way you could think about that is maybe um, ablating specific uh, sentences in the passage and asking how sort of that systematic manipulations of the passage would would modulate the model's predictions. Um, in the case of the false belief stimuli in particular, we were we were quite careful to control for a number of features of those the stimuli because we designed them ourselves. So you know we made sure that both locations that the object could be in was mentioned the same number of times. We manipulated which one was mentioned first to kind of control for first mentioned, recent mentioned biases. Um, but there certainly might be other things that we neglected. And then that's not to say anything about the other tasks that we just adapted more directly, which might um, which might have had some kinds of statistical or lexical compounds in them. Um, I guess the, the one other thing I would say about that is that um, we'd then want to ask uh, whether there's evidence that humans are doing the same thing. So um, just as models might be using kind of cheap tricks to, to solve a particular task, it's very possible that humans are doing something similar. And we know um, from lots of research on what's called good enough comprehension in humans that humans do in fact use often kind of shallow heuristics um, such that they don't have to necessarily attend to an entire sentence or entire passage. They make kind of simplifying assumptions about the things that are likely to be communicated in language. Um, and that helps them allocate their resources to new information. Uh, but you can design scenarios that um, lead them to miss other information, right? These called semantic illusions. So if I ask you, like, um, can a man marry his widow's sister? Um, most people will answer either yes or no. Um, most people usually say yes. But um, of course, if you think about it, um, for a man to marry his widow's sister, for him to have a widow would mean that he has to have passed away. So he can't obviously marry his widow's sister. Um, and there's lots of other scenarios you can come up with where people will interpret uh, or fill in kind of aspects of the sentence or the question with um, their assumptions rather than what was literally said. So I'm just mentioning that to, to clarify that if we did find that, let's say, language models were using kind of shortcut to solve these tasks, I think it would be really interesting to then look at what humans are doing, maybe even using something like eye tracking uh, to look at while they're reading through a passage, what kinds of things they're tending to and how that might drive their behavior. And then if you can systematically manipulate the passage, see how that affects uh, what the kind of errors they might make in the same ways that an LM might make errors. Yeah, that makes sense. I want to pose just another hypothetical here. So say that you were training an LLM or, or a language only system, and your goal was for it to exhibit all the behavioral tendencies that would convince you that it has theory of mind. How would you kind of craft the task and the training procedure to make that happen? Yeah, I think, I mean, very briefly, uh, I think I, I'd want to add a lot more sort of interactive context um, that I think one of the things we're actually interested in investigating is um, the extent to which you need more uh, interactive uh, data, training data in order to develop these theory of mind abilities that, you know, there's, there's one thing, uh, reading kind of novels uh, and, and hearing about characters, and some, to some extent hearing about their internal mental states, um, but another thing to kind of uh, 
you know, a second level is maybe, you know, more reading dialogues and, and looking at how characters interact um, and, and being able to make predictions about uh, what kind of actions tend to correlate with which kind of utterances and things like that. Um, but I think there's another level of um, actually having models, especially as models are often used now, they're often used in this very interactive context where they produce an utterance and then a user produces a response and then the model has to um, produce another uh, utterance. Um, and often the user has some kind of goal and the model is uh, trying to uh, help them achieve that goal. Um, but traditionally, LLMs weren't trained on data that looked anything like that. Um, and so I think you would want to construct um, a lot more uh, training data uh, that involved these kind of like multi-step interactions that involved making inferences about uh, a person's mental state uh, on the basis of the, the kind of really limited linguistic signal that they're producing. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think in the context of the task being language modeling, next word prediction, maybe you also include something like RLHF, do you feel like there would be, at least intuitively, if, if you have intuitions on this, a kind of limitation on how good you could get at mentalizing, given that that's what you're fundamentally doing, even given data that is more around interaction and dialogues? A priori, I'm not sure whether I would say there should be like a upper bound. I mean, it, to me, it feels like an empirical question. Um, what exactly is the the upper bound and how much information you can get from from language? Um, and it does seem plausible to me. I think there's a paper from 2022, Jacob Andreas, I think is the author, arguing that um, you can imagine that a language model trained to do next token prediction in, in tra being trained to do that task has to sort of build a perhaps deep representation of, of the situations and even the agents responsible for producing the text. And so that feels to me like a kind of rudimentary simulation or, or theory of mind of, of, you know, the whatever agent is responsible for producing uh, a text, which in, in the sense of simulating this agent seems like, again, like a kind of very rudimentary form of theory of mind, like the sense that there is like a, a generative mechanism for having produced particular bits of text and uh, a model of that mechanism to me feels similar to how we think about what theory of mind is. Um, but, um, yeah, to me, it feels like an empirical question, how much you can get from, from language. Um, I don't know if you have other thoughts, Kevin. No, very similar. I think, I mean, I, a, a priori, I would have been much more skeptical, you know, a few years ago. And I think to some extent, I, f I think that the, the sort of physical world knowledge questions feels analogous and that, you know, models have improved so much, uh, in their understanding of physical world knowledge, despite all these kind of reporting biases and things which work against them and that, you know, their lack of access to actual sensory motor experience. Um, so I guess that makes me kind of update more towards thinking maybe models could get really, really far towards um, mentalizing ability with just text. Um, I think the other thing that could make you a bit more skeptical is that maybe our theory of mind is really based on um, having our own internal experiences as, as a reference point. Um, and the fact that models presumably don't have these like internal mental experiences could make it a lot harder uh, to do sort of inference about what other people are, are experiencing. Yeah, the internal experiences part is interesting. I, I want to maybe bridge to some higher level considerations about theory of mind in general. And you two wrote a, a blog post together that was detailing some of the results that you had 
about theory of mind. And one of the interesting things that you pointed out there was there's growing evidence that tasks, performance on tasks measuring different aspects of theory of mind, they aren't as strongly correlated as one might think. So they exhibit, in your words, poor convergent validity. And this brings up questions about theory of mind as a construct. So I'm curious how, given the information, this information and your studies about theory of mind, how you two think about this question of whether theory of mind itself is something coherent or a valid construct at all. Yeah, this is a really great question. Uh, the, the issue of construct validity or whether like an, a kind of abstract construct or concept like theory of mind is something that we can usefully refer to as being real, like an actual thing that people have that's a coherent concept, um, I think is a really important one. And, and I think within the last few years, I, I realized more how contentious the debate was within the human literature. Um, you know, I'd known that it, there's a big debate within non-human animal literature and, of course, now within large language models. But um, within the, the, the research on you know humans, there's actually quite a bit of disagreement about whether uh whether theory of mind, first of all, is a coherent construct, and then certainly whether the tasks that we're using to assess theory of mind are valid measures of that construct. Um, so as you said, convergent validity is a, is a measure of to what extent different tasks designed to assess theory of mind correlate with each other under the assumption that, you know, if these are all assessing the same thing, then performance on all these different tasks should correlate. Um, and that's, that's lower than you might expect, I think, for, for a construct that you think is coherent. Another aspect is predictive validity or uh, sometimes called criterion validity. So this is whether um, someone's, some, some system's performance on theory of mind tasks predicts uh, a person's performance or, I guess, behavior in a setting that you think should be correlated with theory of mind. This is really hard to measure um, because you have to have some kind of like a real world measurement that you think should co-vary with theory of mind. But um, some, of the, some of the studies that look at this look at things like, um, you know, comparing a child's performance on the false belief task to um, that child's social behavior. So how long that child spends playing with other children, sort of the, they have ways of trying to quantify the quality of, of that play. Um, and uh, it turns out that the correlations are less strong than you might otherwise expect if this was a good measure. Um, so I think, yeah, to that point, I, I've gotten more, um, doubtful, I guess, of whether this is a, a coherent construct. I think the um, I end up adopting very similar to what Cameron outlined earlier, kind of instrumentalist approach to the question, which is um, to the extent that uh, things do exhibit convergent validity or predictive validity, I think it might be useful to call this constellation of abilities uh, a single term theory of mind, uh, whether or not it sort of is subserved by the same neural circuits or whatever. Um, uh, to the extent that those those tasks do point in different directions, I think um, it does raise the question of whether a better explanation for what a system or human is doing is uh, would be better constituted by actually referring or decomposing that set of abilities into the constituent parts, right? So maybe there's, there's something that involves tracking mental states in a story. There's something else that uh, is involved in uh, trying to explain why someone said something, and those are differentiable abilities that are not um, that are not themselves correlated or not not constituted by the same uh, neural substrate in humans or by the same circuits in a large language model. Um, so I think again I, I end up feeling like uh, the best way forward on that kind of has to be to come up with again a, a variety of different tasks and then also ways of assessing the validity of those tasks um, both for humans and large language models. 
um, to really see whether this is as coherent of a construct as, as we think it is. Yeah, maybe maybe a final kind of high level question on this is the third issue you two bring up in your blog post about machines mentalizing and, and kind of the issues that come up with this is the interpretive question, which we've touched on earlier, where you have the distinct positions of the duck test. If an LLM appears to mentalize insofar as we assume that this is a valid construct, then let's say, again, maybe maybe instrumentally, it's useful to say that it does so. And then again, you have this axiomatic rejection position. And then interestingly, you have the, the secret third option here, which is differential construct validity, which you describe as Maybe the false belief task, for instance, can be valid for humans, but not for LLMs. And as we brought up many times earlier, something like this becomes really hard to claim when we don't know exactly what's going on inside humans either, how humans solve these tasks. And so is this a a position where the two of you maybe feel less comfortable with accepting that just because of the fact that there's so little we can know? Or again... I guess there's an instrumentality question here. If on the one hand, the construct is useful for humans and we find out later on it becomes less useful for LLMs, would you maybe entertain that position instead as an instrumental one? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think to answer your last question, I am personally at least comfortable, I think, saying that a set of tasks, um, and I I really like the way you phrased that, which is maybe um, a set of tasks have... Uh, sort of this validity for humans, but not for LMs, or you know, potentially vice versa. Maybe uh, GPT-3's performance on a bunch of different theory of mind tasks is, is highly correlated and also predictive of its performance in something else, but humans actually don't show that kind of convergent validity. I mean, I think it would be maybe uh, true in, in writing, but not in spirit to say that then like an LM has theory of mind and humans don't. I think that's kind of a misinterpretation of maybe what that means, but it would be a way of uh, sort of interpreting uh, one way of interpreting those results is to say that the construct as measured by the task has coherence for one system and not another system. Um, the differential construct validity view, I think, as you said, I think the fact that we we don't know exactly what's happening with humans um, makes it hard to argue for, like, positively to say, like, definitely, uh, you know, I, so I'm uncomfortable with asserting just kind of um, point blank that... Um, humans we know are doing something different on this task and therefore this this task has differential construct validity um within the last few weeks for whatever reason i started taking this view like more seriously um it just started to seem more plausible to me um particularly from the point of view of predictive validity so i was actually thinking of it from the point of view of like um if the bar exam is is meant to be a measure of sort of predicting uh, your performance as a lawyer and set aside the question of whether it actually is, uh, let's say it is for for humans. Um, my sort of assumption in the past from the more sort of duck test view is that it, it doesn't matter how you solve the bar exam as long as you solve it. So if GPT-4 solves the bar exam, it means uh, sort of the same thing computationally as it would for a human. But um, if you think of it as more of like a prediction of uh, what a system will do Later on, I think it, it does start to seem more plausible to me that this this test, to the extent that two systems do solve the test differently, um, will be having those predictions are differentially valid, I guess, um, for a system's future performance. Um, so it does actually matter a lot how a system solves a task. Um, that doesn't again mean that um, you know returning to theory of mind that we know that GPT four solves or GPT three solves this task in a different way, but it does I think suggest that. 
Um, maybe the alignment at this kind of representational level might be a little more important, at least to me, to how I think about the tasks, construct validity for both LMs and humans than I, than I might have thought about before. And so it's something I'm still very much like mulling over, I think. Yeah, that's helpful. Maybe as a, a final set of questions or a final topic, I want to give uh, Cameron the chance to talk about this really interesting study you did recently on whether GPT-4 passes the Turing test. And maybe to introduce that, could you talk a little bit about the history of the Turing test itself, some of the criticisms that have been levied around it, and why you thought to study this? Yeah, thanks so much. Really happy to uh, chat about that. Um, so yeah, the Turing test really comes from this single paper uh, by Alan Turing in 1950. Um, and he kind of frames it around this question of, can machines think? Um, kind of argues that that question's too hard uh, to answer directly, and so we should replace it with an easier question. Um, and that question kind of uh, becomes the imitation game. So whether uh, an, a machine can imitate humans so well that you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a human and a machine. Um, and you can kind of see clearly there why that could be a good replacement for the thinking question, um, because, and, and it's a very like behavioral, it's you know, very relevant to a lot of the things we've been talking about. Um, that essentially, if you can imitate the behavior perfectly, then maybe we shouldn't spend so much time worrying about if you have the correct, you know, mechanism or relationships with the world, uh, because you know, observe there's no kind of observable way in which we can uh, discriminate between you and the thing that uh, we think is intelligent. Um, so this, I mean, the, the Turing test has received all kinds of criticisms, uh, including from Turing himself in the original paper. Um, who discussed several kinds of um, objections. Um, the, the, the kind of classes of ob objections, um, you can kind of group them to some extent uh, into ones that say, uh, you know, the Turing test is um, it's not uh, sufficient to measure intelligence, uh, that there are things that could pass the Turing test uh, that we wouldn't want to call intelligent. Um, so another way of thinking about that is that the test is too easy um, and these kinds of criticisms are often along the lines of, you know, you have to have some human judge who's deciding uh, or just trying to discriminate between a human and a machine. Um, and they might just not be very good at their job, um, or it might be, you know, humans tend to anthropomorphize. So the fact that we um, believe that some, um, some machine is intelligent, uh, maybe it actually isn't a very good uh, measure of intelligence. Um, and there might be all sorts of other abilities that we care about beyond uh, just pretending to be a human for five minutes um, that, are, that are important, like being able to reason really well. Um, the other kinds of tests uh, or criticisms are that uh, the test isn't necessary for intelligence, that you can imagine some kind of intelligence, um, some kind of alien intelligence uh, that's, or, or you know, uh, machines that are able to do some jobs much, much better than humans. Um, but aren't able to kind of pretend to be a, a single individual human. They're not able to deceive people, for example. Um, I think, the, you know, the best way of responding to those is essentially to say that it's unlikely to provide either um, sufficient or necessary conditions for intelligence, um, but really is just a kind of probabilistic um, metric for intelligence that, you know, things that are uh, very intelligent are probably likely to, uh, more likely to be able to pass something like the Turing test. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And I guess there's another aspect of this, which has to do with one of the things you talked about in this paper was the strategies that interrogators employed 
in assessing whether GPT-4 for them seemed convincing enough. And this would factor, of course, into the strength of the imitation game, I think, as a measure for this sort of thing, right? People will have different experiences playing around with something like ChatGPT or GPT-4. And depending on the particular questions you ask it, the ways you tease it, one person might have a very fluent experience where they're like, this thing is exactly like a human being. And then another looks at it and says, this is actually really stupid. And there's no way that I would attribute intelligence to it. I'm curious how you think about then in crafting something like a Turing test, maybe if your goal is to make it as strong as possible or as strong a measure of intelligence as possible, what sorts of, of strategies, at least in thinking about contemporary systems, would you employ as an interrogator? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, yeah, and I think that is one of the kind of strengths here um, of, of the Turing test is that it can be so adversarial um, and that you can kind of know something, uh, you know, knowing the kinds of uh, things about um, how LLMs work uh, can allow you to kind of like exploit those uh, when you're asking questions. And some people would say that that's not in the spirit of the Turing test, that this should be about, uh, you know, seeing whether you could you could just tell if you were speaking to the machine as if it were a human. Um, but people do, there's a bunch of strategies which tend to be more effective, uh, especially asking around, um, you know, things to do with the sit- current situational environment. Um, like a lot of people had success asking questions about the current time. Um, and the model would be provided with like a, a timestamp, um, but often it would get confused about things like if it was claiming to be in one area of the world uh, and it's we provided it with a GMT timestamp, it would get confused with its time conversions or it would be claiming that it was awake at like four in the morning in Australia. Um, uh, another kind of um, thing that you can try to exploit is, or, you know, it's like ability to manipulate strings uh, because of the way that it represents tokens. Um, it's kind of poor at um, introspecting and in the contents of a token. Um, but these are, in some sense, feel like the least interesting reasons why uh, you'd fail the Turing test. Um, like I think the more interesting reasons are uh, more in the spirit of the model kind of failing to um, either be like reasonable and uh, produce uh, responses that you would expect a human to be able to produce uh, in, the, in the sense of, you know, getting confused in the context of the conversation. Um, or also just like it, it's more like human-like qualities, um, like things like sense of humor um, or uh, kind of having like a personality, being able to, I think, to engage in um, sort of meta games, uh, you know, that, p- that people would say something kind of silly or um, they would start with like a, the beginning of a song lyric uh, and they would expect a human to respond with a continuation of the lyric as opposed to a question about like, what do you mean by that? So um, I think, you know, the game was a good opportunity for lots of people to explore uh, all the really kind of weird ways in which humans can communicate with total strangers because we have this this big communicative common ground uh, that models, at least in this case, did seem to lack to some extent. Yeah. What were some of the most common reasons that your participants gave for their decisions about whether or not they were convinced? So actually, a lot of the reasons pertain to linguistic style, um, which was a little bit surprising to us. Um, And I think it's quite different to the way that people tend to think about the Turing test. So um, people complained that the models were too formal, which is maybe what you'd expect if you've interacted with ChatGPT, Um, but also complained that they were too informal. So we did a lot of prompting to try to get GPT-4 to talk in a more informal way. 
um, and it often kind of overdid it. <laughs> so it would be using lots of like outdated slang uh, and misspelling words intentionally and things like that. Um, and some people find that convincing, but most people could tell, uh, you know, that it was kind of trying too hard. Um, I think one of the most interesting kind of reasons, um, and some of these are, are sort of um, ineffable in some way that people would just say something like, it just had a, a bot-like tone, um, or, you know, it, it just, it, it had a, like an unhuman-like way of interacting. Um, and if you look through some of these conversations where, where people are classing them in that way, um, there is something um, kind of uncanny almost in the way that the model is responding that it's not saying anything really stupid, um, but you can just kind of tell there's like a lack of personality there. Um, and I think that's kind of one of the most interesting reasons and, and might be one of the most difficult to um, like articulate or, or maybe um, resolve as like a, an issue um, towards producing models that, that produce more human-like text. Yeah, there's there's an interesting question about what goes into the kind of public display of personality in one's language. I think something that I, I think Sean mentioned this earlier was how humans seem to have this internal life that goes on and that might come out in the ways we express things or, or think about the world or articulate ourselves. So when you bring up the idea of an LLM lacking personality, that seems like a really interesting potential theory about what could be going on there. But it also feels really, really hard to, to look at experimentally. Yeah, I mean, one of the ways in which we've been thinking about it is that it's almost like an ecological fallacy, where an LLM is trained on all this data that's been produced by, uh, you know, a population's worth of people. Um, and so it comes to occupy sort of like the mean of all of that. And so it's, it's typical in the sense that, you know, it has all these um, views that are kind of the most popular or typical views on, on a wide variety of issues, or it, it, it pretends to have those views. Um, but it, it loses the idiosyncrasy you'd expect of any one individual. Like nobody is this kind of milk toast. Uh, so it, that's kind of an easy way often of identifying it. Yeah, I think this might be a good place to begin wrapping up. And I think as a final question, you two have done some of, I think, from what I've seen, really the most interesting studies interrogating some of these questions empirically about theory of mind, about reference. And I think at once there are a lot of people who should be interested in these questions, people who are on the one hand interacting with these systems and thinking about the sorts of claims they can make and how to understand those systems as they interact with them. One thing that you brought up, uh, Cameron, in your paper was the ELISA effect and the fact that we tend to kind of over-attribute things like cognition to systems that might appear to have that sort of thing. And on the other hand, you have the set of researchers who are really interested in also studying these phenomena and what they can justify about them. I'd love for either of you two to maybe comment a little bit on, given your experience studying these problems, for people who are interested in either better understanding these systems as a user or better understanding them as a researcher, how they ought to think about the claims they can make and the sorts of things that they should go looking at when they are trying to assess some of these abilities. Yeah, I think that um, there's a good paper by Murray Shanahan um, called Talking About Large Language Models, um, where he kind of tries to do exactly this um, and try to encourage people who are interacting with these systems to remember how they work. Um, there's a similar kind of theme in this recent um, paper by Tom McCoy and others um, called Embers of Autoregression, kind of like a uh, tongue-in-cheek response to this Sparks of uh, AGI paper. Um, and I think they're, they're both really trying to emphasize 
that we remember like the mechanism that produces uh, the these responses in language models. And I think I, I have a kind of um, mixed reaction to to both of the papers. I think in general, uh, from what I see and or interacting with people who kind of aren't familiar with the literature, I think there is a massive overinterpretation of what these models are doing, and that people do need to be much more careful in remembering how they work. The fact that they are just producing plausible text, and that in lots of cases this won't be grounded in reference to the truth or uh, really anything else. Um, and I think that is, a, a, you know, it's a very accurate and healthy way I think to think about what these models are doing. Um, but at the same time, uh, in the kind of academic world, I almost feel like there's too much skepticism, or at least people aren't giving enough air um, to this um, theory that maybe they are doing something quite interesting, uh, and that this really kind of dumb uh, statistical low-level mechanism um, doesn't preclude uh, giving rise to intelligent high-level behaviors. And that in some sense, a lot of the neural mechanisms um, of human cognition or also the kind of um, training, uh, you know, development system of evolution also look pretty dumb uh, at a really micro level. Um, so, so I think I kind of, you know, really do feel... Um, Quite, quite torn between those those two different interpretations. But I think it's good to try to maintain a, a, a representation of how these models work at a mechanistic level and not to forget that, but also to be open to the idea that this very simple mechanism might get, give rise to some really interesting behaviors. Yeah, I think Cameron said it very well. I basically agree with everything he said. Um, the only thing I guess I would add is that in terms of things that researchers might um, sort of keep in mind, and I guess also non-researchers interacting with the, these systems, is just the, the ways that I think about how we go about designing and interpreting experiments for humans. I think one of the biggest insights that maybe I hope that our background in cognitive science can help inform research on these systems is through understanding and uh, careful designing of, of experiments, right? So um, that includes things like construct validity, uh, thinking through exactly what a task is measuring and all the ways we have of trying to assess the reliability of a task and its predictive validity, convergent validity, um, as well as other kinds of validity. So external validity, the extent to which uh, a given task or a given subject is representative of the larger population of tasks or, or systems or subjects you're trying to make inferences about. Um, and there's been some interesting papers along these lines in, in recent work on LMs arguing that they're kind of because they're trained on a relatively non-representative sample of, of speakers, um, it might be premature to make generalizations about certainly like humans in general from LMs, but even possibly there's an interesting question about from a single LM and its behavior, what can we generalize about like the class of large language models in general, given variation in architecture, variation in training data. I think just kind of applying that um, Maybe, maybe as Cameron said, the combination of a kind of critical but also open-minded lens to, to understanding these systems, I think is something I, I try to keep in mind and I think is generally helpful, hopefully. Yeah, I think this is a really good way to put it. And I think this is also a great place to end. I want to thank you two for taking so much time to talk to me today and for sharing your work. I'm really excited to see some of the studies that you've mentioned. And I, I hope that people listening to this will also go check out a lot of your work and, and keep following along. So thank you both. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, thank you so much. That's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. And if you like this, really the best thing you can do is to leave me a review and to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting. You can also subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast player. 
And if you want to keep up to date with the latest from The Gradient, to receive emails whenever we have new podcasts, newsletters, articles, then you can subscribe to us on Substack, where you'll get email notifications for everything.